Good morning, Watermark. Today's scripture is Matthew 14, 22 through 36. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. All right. Thanks. Hey, good morning. Everybody good? Great. Okay. So we are covering bigger and bigger passages, which is, thank you, because it's taking a long time to get here. We are over halfway through the book of Matthew. Um, and, uh, and so the passage is getting bigger and thicker, and there's these big, huge stories um, with lots of detail, vivid writing and detail. Matthew here includes some stuff that is not in any of the other Gospels, and uh, there's a reason for it, and we're going to talk about that. So this morning, we're going to talk about a few things. We're going to talk about, um, well, we're going to talk about miracles, honestly, some of that, and then we're going to talk about, um, obviously, the kingdom of God versus the kingdoms of earth. That's kind of the theme of the book of Matthew. And we're going to talk a bit about um, um, joining God in what he's doing. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into this, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place, for these people. I ask that you would um, give us peace, allow us to be present here. Um, There are many, many things which are distracting us, things that are behind us, things that are ahead of us, um, things that we're excited about or fearful of. And I ask that right now you would allow us to put those things aside, affirm that they are, they are there, they are real. But for now, let us be here. And let us be gathered with one heart, one mind, as one people. Um, and receive with oneness what you have for us. Um, prompt us to join you in what you were doing and the work you were doing around us. Help us to see it and to take part in it, but also help us to know our place in it. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Okay, so um, I want to talk about miracles, first off, because people um, in this room will have all kinds of different ideas about miracles. Some of you are like, yeah, miracles, I'm in, no problem. Others of you are very skeptical and you're like, miracles, yeah. Um, They just, they're like, um, uh, I guess they're they're sort of like parables, like they have little meanings and stuff. And so you just, you just kind of explain them all away and, and you don't want to take them seriously. And, and so I get that. I get those inclinations. Um, uh, I want to help explain a bit about why the miracles are in here, Um, about why we have this long sort of journey with all these miracles of Jesus interspersed throughout them. Um, 
They serve a purpose. They have meaning, um, especially to help us understand the writings of the first century Christians. The, each one of them serves our understanding of the kingdom of God and how it works in this world. So first off, um, I want you to understand that they have, um, they have purpose. All of, the, all of the miracles of Jesus throughout the gospel serve a specific purpose that has to do with the story of, um, of God's people. Um, the writers of the New Testament have this, have this picture in their mind of how the world was intended to be, where it was heading to. Um, in their mind, it was also where, where it started from, what God created all of this to be. Um, they speak of the same thing that we speak of, this idea of a fall, and how things that were created to be one specific way have since gotten off track, gotten off course. And the plan of God through Israel um, with the gift of the Torah to help them on their way um, all fulfilled in Christ. The plan is the restoration of all things. Um, human beings being made whole again, being restored to where they're supposed to be, um, under God, having dominion over creation, living in this world in the way in which we were created and intended to be. So there is this purpose in the miracles. Um, you can picture the miracles sort of like this. Like, like everything is now sort of this desolate Land where there was, you can tell there was sort of something, and you can kind of picture what what, what would this have been like, um, green and lush and full of life, because now what we're seeing is brokenness and dullness and and weighty oppression, um, and so the miracles of Jesus, the whole point of them, each one of them serves the purpose of restoration. Um, and what you begin to like, let's look at some of them. So there's sight, uh, sight being restored to the blind, deaf being made to hear, the sick being made well, the hungry being fed, prisoners being set free. There's a miracle where literally there's an earthquake and, and the walls crumble um, and the prisoners escape. All of this has theological significance to the early church. It's important. It's something, of, of course, God would do that. Set prisoners free, of course. Um, um, these are all physical miracles. And then there's the, sort of these emotional miracles where people are given hope that they did not have before. There are these social miracles where at one point you have this centurion and you have some Pharisees and they come together in a story. Oppressor and oppressee. These people want these people dead. These people just want these people um, to stay under their thumb and under their control. Um, and they want their taxes. Like, and they come together. Um, this is a miracle in that day. Um, the early table fellowship of the Christians, bringing Jew, Gentile, slave, and free man, woman, um, all together at the table. That is a social miracle in that day. That did not happen. All of these things, when you look at them, they are meant to be sort of like this. Sort of like this, this breakthrough of what will be in what is. That is what they are. They are not magic tricks to make people go, wow, that must, he must be divine. Like that's not what the miracles are meant to be. That's not how they're meant to be read. They are always a breakthrough of life, things being made whole, a small glimpse of what we would call first fruits of what is to come, resurrection, first fruits of what is to come, all of these things. Um, it's a glimpse into... The hope that is coming. And so it's sort of like in the parables of Christ, there is a seed that is planted. It's the kingdom. So the, the kingdom has been planted. And so it is here and it is growing. And you see little pieces of it breaking through at different parts in the Bible. Always led by Christ. He is always doing these things. Um, and and in, in the mind of the early Christians, it is this thing is a glimpse of how 
all things will be. Now, as you move through the book of Matthew, it starts back here. There is Jesus doing all these miracles, teaching about the kingdom, and breaking through little pieces of the kingdom. As it moves on, at some point, Jesus gathers his disciples, and he says, now it's your turn. I I am your rabbi, you are my disciples, and you're going to now take on a bit of my work, and you are now going to go. And he sends them out, and they start doing these things. So not only are they preaching his message, they're doing his things. And so that they're doing these miracles, they're making people whole again, um, restoring sights of the blind. Um, they're, They're doing everything that Jesus was doing. And so there is this invitation that Jesus offers to join him in the restoration of all things as much as you can. And each person is adding a little piece, sticking a seed and watching it grow. And you begin to see this kingdom present and growing. It is here and it is still coming. It is growing. So that is the best way to view the miracles. Um, That is what they represent. At no point were they meant to like, everybody, everybody, gather around, watch this. Whoa, and everybody's like, and a crowd gathers and they start throwing money and getting attention. That has nothing to do with what the miracles were. They were always intended to be a glimpse of hope, of restoration. So, which leads us to a problem. Because today's miracle that we're reading about um, is Jesus walking on water. And it seems completely pointless, honestly. Um, It's okay to be uneasy about that. It seems completely pointless. Like you're reading this, you're like, why? Is he, like, so if you read the story, okay, um, after he dismissed them, so, so Jesus doesn't get in the boat with them, they feed 5,000 people, restoration, okay, and there's, there's Jews and Gentiles, it's amazing, it's this picture of the future kingdom, and it's like, awesome, hey, pick up all this food, 12 baskets full, representing like the 12 tribes of Israel, everything he does, they're like, hey, I get it, I'm putting it all together, put this stuff on the boat, I'm going to go over here and pray, you guys go ahead, you could have just got in the boat with him, doesn't. Sends them off. They get in the boat. They start going. And then it says this. After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Probably chuckling to himself. Um, Later that night, he was there alone. And the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves. So hold on. So the the Greek that is here um, and some of the other um, writers of Gospels who told this story, it's in every... um, it's sort of when they sent away, like you can, you can sort, of, sort of read in the Greek that what, what basically scholars say is that this was about three o'clock in the morning. They wake up and they, 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 they can't get anywhere. So they're paddling from evening after they fed other people. They get in the boat and they start paddling. It's not really that big of a lake. And they're, they're not getting anywhere. It says the wind is pushing against them. It says they were buffeted. I don't know either why people use this word. Now, buffeted, but they're buffeted by the wind and the waves. It's not a storm. They're not threatened. The boat's not going to flip. They're honestly just having a really hard time getting to the other side. That's the whole problem, okay? And uh, so Jesus walking on the water, it doesn't, he's not really fixing, like he's not saving anybody's life. He's walking on the, on the water. And you kind of read this and you're like, what's the point of this? Is he showing off? Is he, I mean, is the miracle like that he's suspending gravity? Like if he's that, why doesn't he just fly, right? Like, so what are we doing? Um, gets a little farther. He says, and shortly before dawn, about three o'clock in the morning, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him on the lake, they were terrified. Three in the morning, probably super foggy. Jesus comes walking on the water, right? Um, it's a ghost, they cried out. Of course they did. Um, and, and they said, and they cried out in fear. Now, um, so there's some things here that we need, sort of need to grasp because an ancient first century reader is going to read this 
And the miracle as they see it is going to be a far different miracle than what you see. Okay? Um, So, first off, let's talk about the ocean. We've talked about this before. I like to say something two or three times so that people can really get it in their system. When they're reading the scriptures, there's something I want you to see. The ocean, when it is described in the ancient world, is always described as this mysterious, dark, terrifying, evil thing. Um, several times throughout scriptures, it's called the abyss. It is called the dwelling place of Leviathan and the behemoth and these terrifying creatures. Um, evil in the book of Revelation rises up out of the ocean. The beasts do. It is always described as a place of sort of where evil dwelled. And in the ancient world, this is, this is how it was viewed. The, the Israelites were terrified of the water. They were not seafaring people. They were nomadic desert people. They didn't spend a lot of time on the water. They purposely um, did not build giant ships and sail to attack other They just didn't do it. They were terrified of the ocean, um, of, of dark bodies of water. Um, and then throughout their writings, you can see this stuff. You, even, even the demons, when Jesus casts them out of, of the guy, they go into the pigs, and the pigs go, jump into the water. Going home, see ya. Um, and so, like, there's this, this is what we see. And so they, they see Jesus walking on the water. It's three in the morning. It's foggy. It's dark. Obviously, he's a ghost um, because they're over the abyss where all the the ghosts live. So this is what they're sort of seeing. Um, Now, in their minds, when Jesus comes walking on the water, the miracle is not the suspension of gravity, although that's impressive. The miracle is something else entirely. Um, In their understanding of, of ancient literature, how stories were told, who could do what, um, human beings didn't walk on water. Others did, though. Okay? And this is important to understand because they would have known this. Um, here's a short list of, of a bunch of ancient writings that would have been familiar to these people and a bunch of ancient characters um, who, in those stories, walked on the water. All of them were considered divine. Um, every one of them. You have, you have Shamash, the sun god. You have, you have Hermes, the, he's in Homer's Odyssey. Neptune, you have Orion. You have, in, Dio Chrysostom writes about divine men walking on the water. Um, and there's more um, than that. And in their mind, this was something that the divine could do. I know we like to read ancient literature, especially the Bible, and we read the Bible and we think, well, they were, I mean, you know, bless their hearts. They, they believed in magic all the time. And that's what they, they didn't actually. They didn't believe actually much different than you did. They did believe that there was a spiritual realm in which all these incredible things happened. In the physical realm, however, with human beings, they were a lot more like you than you think. They, they would not have had an easier time accepting the resurrection of Jesus. They just wouldn't, unless they saw Jesus walking around resurrected. They would have had a harder time accepting um, a lot of things that people tend to think they just readily accepted. Um, so, in the minds of these people, what was, what was the miracle here? Um, it was less about what we see, the suspension of gravity, and it was more about the fact that Jesus had been teaching them about a kingdom of God, God in their mind, far off, far away, ruling from afar, sitting um, on a throne somewhere up high, um, and ruling. And they were establishing his kingdom, um, and they were under his rule, and Jesus was teaching about how the kingdom comes and, and how it's going to grow and how you can be a part of it. And now... Jesus sends them across the lake to the Gentiles. This is the second time. The first time it didn't go very well. The second time he sends them, and they're having a hard time getting there, and they were buffeted by the winds. It's three in the morning, and they see just Jesus walking on the, on the lake. You know what this is? This is, in their mind, 
it brings together this understanding of this thing that Jesus has been talking about, this kingdom of God, this kingdom of God. Somehow Jesus is connected to this thing. Somehow the divine is present in God. And this is where things begin to change for the disciples. This is the point in the story at which they begin to look at Jesus differently. Because in their minds, this was an act that the divine could do and no one else. And so Jesus' miracle in this particular story is the revelation sort of of divinity as they would understand it in their day. For us, it carries less weight. We see it in other ways. This is a writing to Jewish people, and this is what they would have seen. In their minds, they see Jesus walking on the water, and they're like, that is Jesus doing this divine thing. And this whole other piece of the puzzle he has been building for them is added. And Jesus takes on this heavier, weightier meaning than ever before in this story. So um, that is for them the big aha moment. It is not he did a cool magic trick, and so now I believe he's, he's divine. It is he's doing something only divine people do. Jesus is the only human being recorded in ancient literature is doing this. And this is the place. Now, Matthew includes a story directly after this that nobody else includes, and it has to do with Peter getting out of the boat. Matthew is the only one that records this, which is interesting because Mark's gospel one of the sources Matthew used to write his gospel. Mark's gospel is more or less, he, he worked with Peter. Um, Mark's gospel is more or less Peter's gospel. Like everything that Mark is writing, it's Peter telling him all of this. Which, which is really interesting because you get to the part where they're like, and then what? And well, then we got in the boat and we went across the lake. And then what? We got to the other side. Nothing happened at all. Really. Jesus walked on the water and joined us and nothing else. That's it. Okay. Writing the story. Matthew knows Peter. Matthew was there. Matthew begins to write. He's looking at Mark. He's looking at his. He's looking at Mark's. He's like, wait a minute. <laughs> Peter. <laughs> He's like, you forgot a piece. And he writes it. Now, here's what happened. Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. And they're like, oh, thank goodness. I thought you were a ghost. Um, he says, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, Tell me to come to you on the water. So, this is an interesting piece. This is the piece Matthew includes. But Peter does not. Um, there, is, there is a relationship between a, a first century Jewish rabbi and a, a Talmudim, a student, a disciple. Um, discipleship was a fascinating, interesting thing in the Jewish context in the first century. We, we talk about discipleship today, and we want somebody to disciple us, and we want to be discipled. And, we want, um, and what that basically means for us is it, it tends to mean, um, I'll put it this way, discipleship is not meeting someone every, every two weeks at Panera Bread to drink coffee and talk about whether or not you looked at porn last week. That's not, I mean, it's a good thing, it's an important thing to do. <laughs> that is not necessarily Jewish discipleship. Jewish discipleship is a specific thing. Jewish, a Talmudim, a disciple, is somebody who is a discipled one, someone who is learning the disciplines of their rabbi. Um, they are looking at the way the rabbi dresses. They are spending time with them. Um, and a young boy would, would join a rabbi and live his life with him. The way that he dressed, the kid would dress. The way that he laced up his shoes, the kid would lace up his shoes. The way he prayed, the accent that with which he spoke, the child would mimic 
all of it. The point, day after day after day, was to become less and less like yourself and more and more like your rabbi. So discipleship, um, accountability is an incredible thing. It's really important. Discipleship, if you were to go back in time and sort of ask, and, and people still practice this today, ask a first century Jewish, um, a, a Jewish student or rabbi, um, how do you become like your rabbi? They would say, intense amounts of time living with, studying, and copying the rabbi until you are no longer yourself and you are more the rabbi. And if your rabbi was dead because Gamaliel had these students that lived for, for decades and centuries after Gamaliel died, you know what they did? They would get his writings and they would read them every single week front to back, the whole thing. And so a Jewish um, rabbi would say, if you really are a disciple of this, of this rabbi Jesus of Nazareth, you'll, you'll probably be reading his gospels probably every week, right? I mean, that's, you're, you're spending all your time thinking about what it would be like to be with this rabbi. And so you'll want to know everything about it until you're thinking the way this Jesus did. And so you're reading, you're walking around and you're contemplating these things. What would Jesus do in this situation, in this situation? And you're, you're reading and you're studying how your rabbi lived. That's what you do, right? As a disciple, that's discipleship, right? Like, no, no. I, we get together and we pray and we, we, we try to gossip less. Okay, the reason Peter got out of this boat was because Jesus was walking on the water. That's the reason he got out of the boat. He didn't want to do some magic. He saw his rabbi doing something, and he thought to himself, my rabbi is doing this. I should do this. Now, Peter's the oldest disciple. He likely was 13 or 14 years old. We tend to not think about that, but he was likely 13 or 14 years old. He's the oldest one. It is his job to go first. Peter stands up and gets out of the boat and walks towards Jesus. He calls out to Christ. He says, tell me to come to you on the water. And he says, come. Of course, of course you can come. I'm your rabbi. You're my disciple. I want you to be just like me. Walk on the water. Had things gone better, had this thing not gone south and he started to sink, um, I imagine you would eventually have seen all 12 disciples all having a little huddle on the waves, right? Just hanging out. And Jesus teaching them. This is how this was supposed to go. Peter becomes representative now of a whole bigger thing. Um, let's read the story. Let's read what happens. Um, oh, first off, a little note by uh, the great Greg Keener, New Testament scholar. The disciples were expected to imitate their masters, and Jesus is training disciples who will not simply regurgitate his oral teachings, but who will have the faith to demonstrate God's authority in practice as well. I want you to think about this. Jesus is doing this divine thing that only the divine do, and he comes walking towards the water, and then he bids his disciple, yes, do this divine thing with me. Get out of the boat and walk with me. You will do God's work alongside of me. This is a perfect picture of the way the early um, Christians understood creation and specifically the role of mankind to be the image of God in this world and to do the work of God under God as king and over, having dominion over creation managing and handling it in the way you were intended to, ordering, um, living under the prince of peace. And so Jesus is here once again offering that same offer that the Israelites received so long ago and that they continuously received over and over and over. Jesus looks at Peter and says, I want you to get out of the boat. I want you to do this divine thing with me. We're going to do this divine thing together. Peter says, I'm in. He gets out of the boat. He starts walking. Now, Something begins to happen. Let's read it. 
Then Peter got out of the boat, and he walked on the water. He's doing the divine thing with Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. I immediate, immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith. He said, why did you doubt? Okay, pause. Um, if there's anything, if there's any image that you should have in your minds after this whole study of Matthew, it is the image of sort of the, like the thing I showed last week, the clock dial of Israel, right? The, the cycle that Israel goes through. And I want you to read this story. And by the way, when you read the book of Matthew, this is the story you see. I want you to read this story, and I want you to imagine the journey of Israel. They have a king they are called to serve with and do divine things, and, and he is their king, and nobody else is their king. Um, and they get off track. They become afraid of, of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and they become like Egypt. They start stockpiling weapons. They become an empire, and they commit idolatry, and they fall. And when they're in the depths of, of, of the bottom of their exile and their oppression, they call out to God and say, I repent, save me. The Lord reaches down and pulls them up. This story to a Jewish audience is perfectly understandable. It's exactly how it works. They read this. They see themselves. They're looking at a mirror of themselves. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 1. And he says, For since creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, uh, being understood uh, from what has been made so that, so that people are without excuse. You were meant to be here. You, were, you know your place. Mankind knew from the beginning. My people, the Jewish people, knew. I was their God. They were my people. However, for whatever reason, they replaced me with something else. And here we go. Uh, verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who was forever praised. This last line, who was forever praised, is royalty. It's kingly language. Um, what, they're basically, what, he's, what he's telling them is, you know your story. You exchanged the truth about God, that he was your king, for a lie. Others told you, here's what it will be like if you have a human king. Here's what it will be like. If you want to know that story, you go back to um, 1 Samuel. Um, this is where the whole thing went south. Up until this point, the people are ruled directly by God. And they're, they're trying to fulfill their mission, Okay. Um, in chapter 8, 1 Samuel chapter 8, it says, So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel. Now pause. Samuel here has gotten very old, um, and he no longer is, is leading Israel. He's not a king. He's serving God. Um, he's like a prophet, and he's leading his people. He's leading God's people. And they said to him, Appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, it is not you who they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. He says the natural order of things in which you were created to be, they are rejecting that. They are rejecting me as their king. They want to be like all the other nations of the world and have these human kings, these created beings as their kings. They were never intended to live this way. And then Samuel lashes out at him in verse chapter 12, and he says, you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. He says, one day you will realize how stupid this was, that you wanted to be ruled by human beings. You will know how dumb this is. Not too long after this, they lose everything. They end up in exile and in oppression. Their enemies have swarmed around them and taken them, and they are now enslaved. And in their slavery, they wake up one day and they realize, um, our kids are growing up. We don't have a temple. We don't have land. We don't have our Jewish rituals. These, these, these kids are going to have no idea how to be Jewish, how to be God's people, how to be Israelite. We have to write down our story. 
So you flip over to page one, you see the creation, you see people created in a way that they were supposed to be, living the way they're supposed to be directly under God, in a garden which they were there dwelling with God. And then a little bit later, it talks about this, this serpent comes along and the serpent offers them some fruit of a tree they weren't allowed to eat. And it says, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Knowing good and evil is a specific thing. Um, we've talked about this. This was the job of the Holy Spirit to teach the prophets good and evil and help them discern the judges, help them discern good and evil. When you see Solomon rendering these huge judgments, this is what was going on. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, you, you yourself can usurp the throne of God. This is the temptation in the garden. This is the huge temptation. And they fell for it. It's the same temptation they faced under Samuel. And they fell for it. God has invited them into divine work with God. Not to rule over God. Not to go their own way and speak for God and change his decrees. There is one way you are called to live and it is this way. And so we go back to our story of the water. We have Jesus doing the divine thing, now revealed as the king of this kingdom of which these people are a part of. And Peter sees his rabbi, his king, he gets out of the boat. He starts doing the thing that the divine is doing and inviting him into. If Jesus wasn't there, he's not doing this thing because it's not his, it's Jesus's. And at some point, Peter begins to look around and he says, there's some scary stuff out there. And he begins to doubt. Maybe there's another way. Maybe there's some way I could, I could do this on my own. And it says he, he, he takes his eyes off of the king and he begins to look around at other things. Instantly he begins to sink and instantly calls out. Calls out to Jesus. Then Peter got down to the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hands and caught him. You of little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? So when Jesus walks on the water, it has these divine sort of implications of the whole thing. The when Peter walks on the, divi- on the water, it is this divine invitation. It is, it, is, it is, come, join me in what I'm doing. And when the Jewish people read this and they see him take his eyes off and they look at the threat around them and they see him fall, what they see in that is themselves. Their desire to take God off the throne and put on the throne whatever it is that, that they believe can provide for them what they are actually supposed to get from God. This is called idolatry. This is how idolatry works. Um, your safety, your identity, your security, your providence, all of it is meant to, to, be, to be gleamed from God. And you take God off the throne and you say, you know what, like, I, I hear what Jesus says about like a Christiform life, like living a life of the cross, um, of taking up the cross, not the sword, taking up, taking up grace and mercy, not power and riches and money, taking up all these things and, and trusting that Jesus is king and trust that if I, if I live in the path of Christ, even though it doesn't make a lot of sense in this, in this world, it seems like a suicide mission living in the path of Christ. And he says, but I want you to trust me. When you take your eyes off of me, you end up doing the things that human beings have always done. And we end up trying to fix the things that other humans have broken, thinking that somehow we will be different and we'll do it right. And the whole time Jesus is saying, how many times are you going to try this? Over and over and over. I'm right here and I'm inviting you to do my work, but it's going to take some trust that this is the way. There are several temptations 
that we face when, when we are invited to join God in doing divine work. First off, the divine work, again, these breakthroughs of the kingdom. You and I, every single one of us, are called to plant these seeds in the dirt, to, to show people, to live already as if the kingdom is here, though it is not yet fully realized. As citizens of this kingdom, we are called out of the nations to be a separate people and to live as if God is our king, um, represented by Jesus Christ. This is who God, who we should understand God to be and to be like. And we live in this way. And so we live in this way that, that, is, that, is, that is breaking through this future kingdom now. People are hungry, we feed them. People are sick, we make them whole again. People are lost, we, we bring them home, we give them community. People are lonely, we give them family. Um, all of the things that we're supposed to order our life around and do with every piece of, of money and clothing and, and, and land and everything that we have is supposed to be centered around exposing people to the kingdom. That is what is supposed to be. But there are temptations in, in doing this divine work that God has called us into. The first temptation is obviously to usurp the throne. That is the first temptation. If God calls me to walk on the seeds towards him with my feet, like literally stomping on evil. It's a beautiful picture, right? Like Jesus is, is walking on hell towards a boat filled with 12 baskets of food overflowing, heading to Gentile territory. This whole scene is amazing. And he's inviting you. You can do this too. Come on. However, the temptation when God calls us to do this, when we are succeeding, it, we might actually begin to think that, that we can do this apart from Jesus and say, well, I can, I can do this with anyone as king. I can just do this anywhere. And Jesus says, when you go this direction, you will fall every time. Jesus is Lord, no one else. Jesus remains on the throne. As followers of Christ, this is what we do. Um, you and I, we are called to, as much as we can, be like Jesus. But you are not the Savior. You are not the one with all the answers. You are not. Um, you don't need to be a Savior. You don't need to, anything more than to find your identity in Christ. There are lots of people telling you to be more and to do more and to become more and better and try harder and Jesus is just simply calling you to, to engage in the divine work that he is doing. He doesn't need you honestly to be anything else other than a representation, an icon of Jesus in this world. It has nothing to do with status and money, nothing. You are enough to do what God has for you. Reject all temptations by crafty serpents to be their savior or their great hope. You are not their great hope. You have a place in the church, the worldwide body of believers who together carry food and 12 baskets to the Gentiles on the other side who are desperate for healing. And here's the thing. They see the Gentiles who rejected Jesus before. They see the disciples and Jesus coming in the boat. Here, let's flip to the end here and read this. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret, uh, and when the, when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country and people brought all their sick to him and, he, and they begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak and all who touched it were healed. So they recognized Jesus coming with his disciples and this boat full of food that had just been served up to Jews and Gentiles on the other side of the lake. And they, and they, they spread the word, Jesus is coming. And they gather around and they are healed. There's this beautiful, incredible message there. They will recognize Christ, honestly, when the church approaches in the way that we are supposed to. 
with Jesus as Lord, with allegiance and trust that this is the way. They should be able to look at the church and they should recognize, oh, those are the people of Jesus. That's the body of Christ. They're coming to bring healing. Go tell everyone that the church is here. At this point in the church's history, it is quite the opposite. The church is coming. Call all the lawyers and get them all lined up. That's our general, generally how we're viewed in this world. It is, it is vastly different than how the early, early, early church was viewed. Um, the second temptation that we have is to simply doubt the king's edicts. Here's how this works. Um, and it gets, a little, it gets a little touchy here. I know, I'm going to rub some people the wrong way. Um, the, the, the church is called to respond to hatred and oppression and violence in this world um, with the response of the cross, the same way that Jesus responded on the cross. And then people come to you and you say, oh, really, is this, is this um, how, is it, would that really have stopped the Nazis when they were, when they were, when they were like conquering the world? Your, your answer is to just, to do what Christ did and just die? No, actually, the answer is that the Nazis never would have been able to do what they did if the church had not gone along with it. Most terrible, terrible things in this world only happen because the church is not involved being the presence of God there. We are not the tangible presence of the body of Jesus in those places. And so there is no love, there is no reconciliation, there is no peace. And the reason we don't do these things is because we doubt, honestly, that Jesus meant what he said when he said all these things. We doubt that, that we'll be okay if our life is aligned with the life and teachings of Christ. Um, instead, um, well, let's, let's back up a little bit and read this. When they climbed into the boat, Jesus and Peter, the wind died down, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. Now, Son of God in the first century is, is an important phrase. It is how ancient kings referred to themselves um, all the time. Um, Caesar called himself, um, Caesar Augustus called himself God. His son, after he died, called himself the son of God. Uh, in the Roman Empire, this was a powerful thing. It simply meant king. Being the son of God is not, is, that's not the phrase that is saying that Jesus is divine. That, that means he's king. It's a Gentile way of saying king, honestly. Um, but it's like anti-Roman way of talking. Um, so the divinity of Christ is wrapped up in all kinds of phrases that, that he uses and the actions that he talks. But, but this right here, this phrase means king. So what they're saying is when Jesus gets in the boat and everything sort of stops, they're saying, you really are king. You really are king. That is what you're saying. Now, so what they're basically saying is there is no other hope in this world. Um, and, and here's how this plays out. Um, because typically Christians get involved with these other things. So typically um, there's, you know, there's one party and that, that, that the one political party in our own country and it becomes like this huge dumpster fire and the Christians go up and they say, well, the answer is for the other people to get, in, to get into power. That is not the answer. Never has been, never will be. The answer is for the church to become the body of Christ, an insurgent army of love and the cross in the middle of every nation in the world and to plant these churches, which are these sort of battleheads of the opposition to earthly kingdoms. And we declare, 
Jesus is Lord, and we are watching, and when you are wrong, we are going to speak up as the voice of God, as prophets, and we are going to tell you that is not the path of Christ. This is the path of Christ. And the other side shouldn't feel any better when they get in power as well, because we're going to remind them, Jesus is Lord, you are not, and we will speak up to you when you don't act right. Um, and this thing will grow, and they will look at us, and they will see Christ, and we will feed their, their hungry, we will heal their sick, and this is the way that we are supposed to live, and this thing should grow. However... We become too wrapped up in our earthly fears and we take Jesus right off the throne and we accept what other people are offering. We are called to be a little more brave than that. To put a little more trust and allegiance in the king and the king's edicts. This is how you are called to live. You and I, the church. It is difficult. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It's divine knowledge that is revealed to us through Jesus. And it is symbolized in the broken bread and the poured out body, blood of Christ. And so we're going to take communion, our communion servers. You guys can take the elements and spread around the room. Um, these are hard things to hold on to. I struggle with them every day. Many of you struggle with them every day. It is hard to trust Jesus and to do the right thing when you know it will cost you something. And the question pops in your mind, well, this is a really scary thing. The winds are really blowing. Um, and we become afraid and we start pondering these other ways that we can sort of still follow Christ and still do these other things and it doesn't work and that's when we begin to sink. Exile is the next step. But there's always a reminder if you've gotten off track, Lord, save me. He always has. He always will. There to call you and, and, and reach out his hand and pull you back up and to bring you back into the church and to keep moving. And so our communion servers can spread around the room um, we do this every week. It's a symbol of unity. Um, it's how we uh, celebrate the grace of God in our lives. Um, it's one of the things we do to refocus ourselves. Um, saint and sinner alike, no matter how holy or pious or, or how much of a sinner or, or however you view yourself, we all come to the table together. We all receive the same thing. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ spilled for you, for your salvation, for your healing. Go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for this place and these people. Make us whole. Um, help us to be reminded constantly that you are king. Help us to see our job of, of taking part in, in your divine work, of seeing these miracles happen. Lives made whole. People reconciled. Let us see it and do it. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen.